Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. And all right, I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. And as always, I'm on with my partner, Dominic Tavella, broadcasting live from Long Island. How are you, Dom? Good evening, Mike. How are you? I'm all right. So while we had daylight savings time last week at this time, we were we were both talking with a brilliant sunset in our background. And uh, now it's nighttime, just like that. I, I still haven't figured it out in my uh, 60 years. I, I still don't know how this makes any sense whatsoever. And uh, But yet, you know, it's something that they institutionalized a long time ago. And I guess we'll live with it for a little while longer. It's not your job to figure it out. It's just make you just have to make sure that your watches are set correctly and you show up on time on Sundays. Uh, well, don't miss the football game. And yes, dinner. Do not miss dinner. So. Exactly. Exactly. So look, we in the past shows, we've had a lot of portfolio managers tell us that there were more green lights than red lights. And last week, there was certainly all green. There was no red lights at all last week. The S&P was up 2.03. The Dow was up 1.43. And the NASDAQ, Dom, last week was up 3.08, just yeah, in one three. week. Three percent, Mike. So you know the the the. I guess the the positive in this is that we literally have been speaking about this with some really intelligent, uh, very educated, very sophisticated portfolio money managers. But probably what four six weeks, right, mm-hmm. Mike? We we had that little dip uh, about uh, early October. Uh, the markets had a, historically that's the, the time of year when things kind of get a little wishy-washy and the markets pulled back six, 7%. And we, we were optimistic on that, right, Mike? We thought yes. that that would be a perfect buying opportunity. Fortuitously, we did. Um, we were pretty aggressive in, in trying to put money back uh, into the market, back in our portfolios. And gosh, we've been rewarded for that. We, uh, the client portfolios are doing phenomenal. They are doing phenomenal. And, and we've been We've been cautiously optimistic right along, but I have to tell you, Dominic, I was on the phone all day today and I had so many clients and potential clients say to me, I don't know why this market continues to go up. So I think it's kind of healthy that there is this pessimism still out there as opposed to euphoria. Um, but but there more clients than not just say to me, you guys just keep doing what you're doing because we're going to get hit in the back of the head soon. I mean, that's kind of the general consensus with what I'm hearing. What are you hearing? Uh, I would say almost the exact same thing, uh, Mike. It's like markets can't keep going up. Uh, there doesn't seem to be anything supporting this. And we're going to talk to our our next guest uh, about this specifically. But earnings, 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 earnings. And they've been phenomenal. Uh, 80% of the companies that have reported so far better than expected earnings. Um, and the Fed basically has been supportive and continues to be supportive. Even the big announcement that we were all kind of frightened about this week, generally speaking, they're, yeah, they're going to start the tightening cycle. They're going to stop the slowdown and eventually stop this quantitative easing. But they left themselves so many open doors to switch gears and switch strategy that it didn't spook the market. So strong support by the Fed, fiscal spending. We just got another bill by Congress putting more money into the economy. COVID doing much better. Uh, Cases got rolling down uh, and then throw in corporate earnings that uh, are figuring out how to deal with inflation. So far, so good, Mike. So far, so good. You, you, you were referring to the infrastructure bill, and I think the other good thing about the infrastructure bill is a lot of the bad stuff in terms of tax increases and ways to pay for it was really negotiated out. So the bill is not as enormous, which I think is a good thing, as it was going to be, and a lot of the 
the tax hikes for corporate America and, and maybe even capital gains, what well, still might go up, but the spooky numbers, Dom, are not being discussed like they were. So uh, again, this is a glass half full, half empty. The infrastructure bill, pretty pretty clean. Not obviously they call it infrastructure, but I think a third to half of it is actually infrastructure. Everything else is is Congress uh, just spending money away. It's this next bill, their social infrastructure bill that potentially could have some bad news for corporate taxes and personal individual taxes. But uh, as you hinted, a lot of that has kind of been negotiated out. We'll see whether they pass it or not. Um, a lot of us hope it doesn't. Uh, you know, we let's close the year out. Let's move forward with a fresh view on where the economy is and where the economy really needs this extra spending. It's this next bill that could be the problem child. Right. And, and hopefully, as I said, and you said, hopefully it's not as uh, dramatic as, as they want it to be. And, and, I, and I don't think it will be. I think they're going to have to negotiate it down a little bit. So tonight's guest, Dominic, is Dwayne Roberts. He's the chief financial officer. I'm sorry. He's a, he's a CFA is what I meant to say, and director of equities and portfolio manager for Dana Investments. Dana is a partner of ours, manages some of our equity portfolios. And we're looking forward to hearing what, what Dana has to say. Um, very large institutional money manager. I believe the number is nexus of $7 billion. Um, so we'll, we'll, we have a very interesting guest tonight. They'll give us some insights. We'll be right back right after this break. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic Tavella and our special guest this evening, Dwayne Roberts, Director of Equities and a Portfolio Manager with Danner Investments. Good evening, Dwayne. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Good evening to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dwayne. And uh, I can't wait to get into some of your, uh, your insights about what's going on out there. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Dwayne, I know you heard the, the, the conversation between Dominic and I a few minutes ago. Um, you know, what's your take on where we are right now? Um, the week that we had last week is it was at a an anomaly. Um, do we still have some potholes ahead, or how do we how do you think we're going to uh, close out the year? Well, I think there are always potholes ahead, but but I don't know that last week is an anomaly. I think last week was relief that the um, that the Fed meeting went about as well as could be expected. I mean the um, the idea that we're going to start tapering on quantitative easing uh, was well projected and, and, and certainly expected, but there was a dovishness to how that was communicated. And I think that the dovishness is, is um, 
is supporting the concept of, of, of the, this liquidity driven market that we're in. So, you know, there are a lot of positives in the market. You talked about it in your opening segment that, um, you know, look at, look at what's happening with corporate earnings, uh, how quickly they've rebounded from the very, uh, the very brief recession that we had. Um, and, and that the earnings growth continues to look very positive. Um, it, now, some of that is slowing down, um, but the numbers are still, the growth numbers are still positive and, and still above um, you know, long-term trend or at least recent long-term trend. Uh, I guess that would be intermediate term trend. I'm thinking, you know, the last 20 years. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think corporate earnings are gonna continue to drive things. Um, the, the monetary side has been supportive really since 2008 and continues to be supportive. And, um, you know, we didn't get anything communicated last week that indicates that there's going to be uh, any kind of abrupt change in that. Um, uh, and, and then as you uh, were discussing a few minutes ago, the fiscal side, and we've had a huge amount of spending over the last 18 months. Uh, and now with, um, you know, the, the end of last week, getting the, the, uh, the basic infrastructure bill passed, um, you know, that I think is, it will continue to be good news for the economy and for, for the markets. Uh, and then the uh, expanded infrastructure bill, it, it, it um, you know, I, I was pretty skeptical about it a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm becoming more optimistic that something will be done. But I think again, to, to what you guys were talking about earlier, um, the reason I'm more optimistic something is going to get done is because it's been negotiated down to where it's, it, it is a much more moderate bill um, and more, more palatable to, um, uh, you know, at least the, the entire Democratic Party, which it needs to be. Um, you know, I don't think they're going to get any votes on the Republican side. Um, but you even had resistance within the Democratic Party for a while. And I think they're, they're negotiating enough to, um, to overcome the, the extremes within that party um, on, either, on either side, the moderates and the, and the progressives, uh, to a point where I do think we'll get something done. It may be even further limited than what we're talking about today or what we hear just reported on today. But um, I am more optimistic that something will get done. The bottom line, though, is that you know, between those two bills and what we've already seen passed and spent, um, you know, this has been a strange recession. Uh, the recession of 2020 was a strange recession, and um, we actually saw disposable incomes go up uh, because of the transfer payments. Um, and, and so that's been very supportive of, of risk assets. The, the, the Fed has certainly been encouraging um, the success of risk assets. Uh, and, and so uh, I see that continuing um, for at least several quarters. Uh, the earnings side, I think, will continue for many quarters. Uh, and so I think it is a good place to be. And last week just maybe was maybe a little too strong in its positive direction, but I think directionally it was right. Uh, and I, you know, I do think markets will remain strong. Um, there are some areas of concern. I do think there are some areas of, of speculative risk. And I think you've seen some of that even just today, for example, with the pullback in Tesla. Um, but still, I don't think anybody who's been a long-term Tesla investor, and by long-term, I mean anybody over three months is complaining by what we've seen Today, so, because Dwayne, let me let me be the devil's that. advocate uh, on exactly that point. Um, so I don't know how many CEOs or company heads I've seen that where they've beat on the top line and they've actually even beat on the bottom line profit for the quarter, but they've talked about higher input costs and their ability to pass those higher costs on to the consumer and the consumer willing to, to spend that money. How long does that continue? How long does before the consumer says not enough? I'm not doing it anymore, or companies just don't have that ability to, to pass on the higher cost. Yeah, so that's I mean the probably the one big universal fear in the markets right now is inflation, uh, and you know is it transient or not? Um, I'm in the camp that it's not, um, but I also believe that it's not going to be so severe that it derails anything uh, in terms of the success we've seen. So. 
uh, our focus has been looking at companies is to is to try to identify you know where are the companies that um, that have been able to manage their supply chain disruptions uh, and the costs associated with those uh, where are the companies that are able to pass those increased cost on to um, customers and you know I look at, at just something as basic and 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 unglamorous I mean so much of what we've seen over the last five or six years um, you know you've got to be a high tech 30 percent revenue growth per year company to to get much attention but I just look at the automakers uh, GM and Ford and and both of them have been performing quite well um, you know Tesla clearly has been outperforming those because it's the tech darling um, but GM and Ford have been doing quite well. Uh, and despite the problems that they've been faced with, their margins are actually doing quite well um, because while they're not able to deliver as many autos as they'd like to be delivering, um, it means that they're not discounting anything. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, when, when demand exceeds supply, that usually is pretty good for the person doing the supplying. Um, and in that case, you know, Ford and GM are, are seeing some fairly uh, strong trends. Now that'll start to weaken uh, as the supply chains um, uh, become unclogged, uh, particularly on the semiconductor side. Uh, and we may see that, that there's some weakening of demand from uh, you know, the lack of, of stimulus, but, um, but you know, the fiscal stimulus is is not really slowing down. It's gone from kind of the emergency COVID spending to now these infrastructure bills. So, um, you know, I think that there's still going to be plenty of, of fiscal support. Uh, we, we think the monetary support will go well into 2022. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that imbalance um, is still going to favor, uh, the demand side is still going to exceed the supply side for a while. Uh, so I, I, I do think you're going to see um, many businesses that at least in the short term, meaning the next year, are going to be able to pass those costs through. Um, now we'll see what happens after. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with um, you know, the labor picture. That's probably the bigger concern to me um, is what happens with labor inflation uh, and, and labor availability. Um, and, and that to me could be um, uh, there's certain industries where, where labor issues could, could be the, uh, the factor that upsets the, the trends that we've seen. Dwayne, just getting back to the infrastructure bill, um, when people hear infrastructure, I think the first thing they think of is tunnels and roads and, and bridges. But if you correct me if I'm wrong, I think this infrastructure bill also includes money to build charging stations for EV vehicle, electric, electronic vehicles, electric vehicles um, universal Wi-Fi. So I think this infrastructure bill is a little, I'll use the word sexier than, than an infrastructure bill 20 years ago, where money, you know, would have been just ready for shovel ready projects to, to uh, shore up our, our bridges and roads. Is that correct? That's correct. And if you look at the, I don't remember the exact statistics, but it's a minority of the spending in, in the basic infrastructure bill that was just passed is going to roads and bridges, which is what most people think. Yeah, of. I think the actual number is about a third of the bill. Yeah, yeah it's much less than half. So, right. um, so the rest of it is, 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 Michael, as you were highlighting some other things, I mean, there's, you know, there's transportation systems, so ports and airports and things like that. Um, there's the electrical, electric vehicle infrastructure, um, the, uh, the broadband piece of it. Um, yeah, there are many things that, that uh, traditionally haven't been thought of as infrastructure. And then when you get to the second bill, um, that broadens even further. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I think that's been part of the political debate is what does infrastructure actually mean? Um, but I think, you know, certainly broadband. I mean, think about the last year and a half to two years. Uh, the, the, the businesses that have been able to continue to operate with the least amount of disruption did it virtually. Um, education did it virtually. And, and all of that re relies on significant infrastructure in terms of broadband internet access. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the U.S. 
in my opinion, could be stronger in terms of the, the infrastructure we have to support broadband access, uh, particularly in rural areas. Um, but even in, you know, even more broadly than just the rural areas, I think, you know, there, there are areas of, of um, education, for example, became a challenge for certain parts of our population because they didn't have adequate internet access. Um, I know, um, you know, even personally, uh, occasionally here at, at, in my office, but 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 certainly when I'm traveling, it's 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 extremely frustrating to be in a place where you have uh, unreliable internet. I mean, you may have what claims to be high speed internet, and it is high speed most of the time, um, but you'll get these periods where it'll drop out for a few minutes and and gets really sluggish. Um, you know, so that kind of infrastructure, I think, is is really important to our long term economic well being. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I do think roads and bridges are also important, but I know in my area, I live in the Dallas area, um, you know, we've been building a bunch of new roads, roads and bridges here for, for more than a decade. Um, I'm not sure how much, you know, basic infrastructure spending additional. I mean, I mean, you know, there are more things we need, don't get me wrong, um, but I don't see this bill as, as significantly impacting that part of our infrastructure where I'm hoping it'll have more of an impact or on some of these other, uh, other forward looking infrastructures like, um, you know, like the, I mean, the utility grid, the, the electric vehicle charging network, broadband. Um, you know, I do live in Texas and, and earlier this year, as you probably heard, we had a significant issue with our utility grid. Um, and, and so that kind of infrastructure needs to be upgraded. And, you know, we, we had warnings here in the state of Texas years ago with, um, uh, with a similar, uh, less severe freeze. Um, and you know, reports were written about it, but, but nothing was ever done adequately to follow through to, um, to, to, to develop the infrastructure. And, and it's not just the renewable infrastructure, it, it was the, the fossil fuel infrastructure as well. Um, that that shut down because you know pumps were freezing and other things were freezing and so um, you know that type of infrastructure investment is important um, and it, it's it's important for us as investors to be able to take a long term view. We get so short sighted on quarterly earnings reports um, that sometimes we we miss the fact that a little spending today may pay off significantly in five years or 10 years. Uh, and I think, you know, Dominic, you mentioned that we may talk about some of the ESG things later on. Uh, I think that's one of the big advantages of having an ESG on perspective on things is, is it does take a longer term view and gets rid of that short-sightedness that, that um, I think is frankly, um, probably well, overly guys, common you guys went through it in Texas and, and with the power grid there. And we certainly had our issues up here in the Northeast when Sandy, the hurricane came up right, and right. flooded out a lot of systems. And I think one of the bigger criticisms about this particular bill um, is that maybe a little bit more money should have gone in direction of, of building up our existing infrastructure, like we just described and maybe safeguarding it for future generations. But uh, it is what it is. And, and we just need to make decisions going forward. Yeah, no, one of the company, one of the utility companies that we're invested in is um, your Connecticut neighbor, services your Connecticut neighbors. And, and I remember the issues they had in 2020 um, um, with disruptions that uh, caused us to actually to, to uh, really dig deep into that stock and decide whether we wanted to keep it. We did elect to, to keep it, at least for now, um, because we do think they are doing some things on the with a longer term perspective that, that looked good, but, but certainly they had some um, issues uh, that the existing infrastructure couldn't handle um, uh, with the flooding and the storms that you guys got last year. So when clients ask us, why do we bring these issues up and how does it affect me? This is exactly it. This is how we live and breathe every day. Um, and some of these issues are not being addressed um, both for our well-being, but also from an investment perspective, does it make sense? And this is an area where do we want to allocate some dollars? So uh, that's why we get to speak to you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's like all of these things are important and, and you know, there are different time frames. There's, I, I, I do think the public markets tend to focus a little too short on the single quarter. Um, but, you know, there, there are things that play out over, uh, over 18 months and then there are things that are going to play out over five to 10 years. And as investors, we need to keep all of those time horizons in, in mind. Uh, and frankly, I think the longer term horizons give you clearer vision on, on what you really need to be doing and how you should be investing. So, Dwayne, on that note, you know, we spent the first half of the show looking at the market from 50,000 feet in the air. When we come back after this break, if you could stick around, we'd like to get a little more granular on some of the funds and some of the portfolios that you manage and some of the interesting things that you guys are doing, especially with ESG. Okay. All right. So we'll be right back right after this break. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella and Dwayne Roberts, our guest this evening from Downer Investments. And Dom, I know you and Dwayne go back a little further and have some great experience with Dana's ESG portfolios. So um, I'm going to throw it over to you and let you get into that a little bit with Dwayne. So Dwayne, uh, I know you guys have been doing this for a very, very long time and way before ESG was sexy and in the headlines every day. So maybe just a little bit, what is ESG for you guys? What does it mean? Uh, what sectors you would avoid? Why is it at the, at the forefront of the news these days? Maybe just a kind of a generic uh, picture of it all. Sure. So we've been doing it, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, for a while, for over 20 years. Um, and it was initially done uh, at the request of a client, quite frankly. Um, and so we, we had to kind of dig in a little bit and learn uh, what that meant. Um, and you know, we started, so yeah, I think yeah, ESG, environmental, social, and governance, these are factors that are starting to get more and more attention. So this ESG integration, ESG approach to investing is getting more attention under that under that um, name, but you know, I would argue that good investors have been paying attention to these non-financial factors for decades. This is not new. Um, the other way of looking at it is that it tends to be kind of values oriented. Uh, and that's really what started us down this path uh, is the clients having, bringing a values mandate to what we were doing. And so, um, yeah, I think you need to think about it in, in, in two ways. One is, are you specifically looking for kind of a, a, to align your investment portfolio with a set of values, your values, so that you feel like your investments are supporting um, um, more than just uh, financial returns, but, but, but other returns, non-financial returns as well. Uh, ESG integration though, I think, grew out of that because a lot of the values-oriented investors were looking at these environmental issues. They were looking at social issues. They were looking at corporate governance uh, and, and starting to pay more and more attention and, and pushing on some of those things. And I mean, pushing, meaning interacting with the companies they invested in um, to try to improve corporate governance structures, for example. Um, and so, you know, you, it was kind of that values base started a lot of what, what we refer to today as ESG integration. But ESG integration, I think, should be applied by every investor, um, whether you have a values mandate or not. Because uh, again, just like going back 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, I mean, I, I think you know Benjamin Graham probably would have thought, yes, of course I pay attention to corporate governance. Uh, 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 of course, I'm going to pay attention to how well a company is uh, interacting with their labor force uh, on the social side. Um, you know, I am looking at, at the consequences of, 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 you know, what are the long-term consequences of, of pollutants that could come back and be some sort of financial liability. So in some ways, whether you're 
values driven or not, paying attention to these factors are important. And that's what is, I think, driving ESG into the mainstream is that um, it may have been a focus for values investors over the last several decades, but in the last, the last decade, it's become more and more uh, clear to the mainstream investment community that we should be paying attention to these factors, even if it's not a values oriented or a values mandated portfolio. So, um, so yeah, ESG, we think is just very important. It's, it's, it's a broader way of looking at things. And I mentioned the, the timeframes earlier. Uh, I think ESG forces you to take a longer perspective on the time horizon, uh, which as I mentioned earlier is beneficial to, uh, in my view, it's beneficial to investment performance. I think that you know, short-sightedness leads to over-trading, which um, you know, quite frankly, um, uh, there's a lot, a lot of studies that show that, that highly traded uh, accounts tend to underperform those that are less highly traded. Um, and, and so it, you know, the longer term perspective, I think, helps people understand what their goals are, um, helps companies understand what their strategy is. Uh, and ESG forces um, some of that longer term perspective. Dwayne, when you look at ESG, is ESG a concept or are there sectors that someone who's a devout ESG investor, they're going to be a hard no? Meaning, are there tobacco and alcohol companies in an ESG investment? Are there gun manufacturers in an ESG investment? Um, I remember many years ago, I bought a client, the S&P 500, and they called me up and said, well, Walmart's in the S&P 500 and Walmart sells guns sell my S&P 500. So I talked them out of that. So my, my, my question is, as I said, is, is ESG a concept or are there truly certain categories where you just cross them out? Yeah, so it can be both. Again, it depends on the client. So we have clients who tell us that they don't want to invest in certain things. Um, so tobacco would be one of them. Gun manufacturers would be another. So you picked a couple of examples there. Um, you know, in the case of someone like Walmart or even a Kroger, for example, you know, Kroger bought a company years ago called Fred Meyer, which is out in the Pacific Northwest, and um, you know, they're they're kind of a general store, and and in rural Washington State, um, you know, ranchers use guns. Uh, and you can buy one at a Fred Meyer. So all of a sudden Kroger is selling guns. Um, is that necessarily something that you would want to preclude from your portfolios? It, it, it's really a client driven, in our perspective, it, it, it's client driven. Because I would argue that, that you can do ESG investing and not eliminate anything, right? right. So right. you could look at, okay, Walmart sells guns, but are they doing it in a responsible way? Mm -hmm. I, for some people, that's an oxymoron, perhaps a contradiction. Um, but you know, are 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 all the laws being um, followed? Um, is it is are they avoiding selling to minors? Um, you know, there are things that can be done. Um, and, and you, know, you, can, you can push companies, again, engaging with companies as part of ESG investing in my mind. Um, so having a conversation with Walmart about their practices in terms of gun sales or with Kroger, and we did have those conversations with Kroger years ago. Um, that's something that I think is part of ESG investing. And it doesn't mean you, you stop investing in, in, in Kroger because they now have this you know, a, a few stores, more than a few, but, but relatively speaking, uh, a few stores in the Pacific Northwest that sell guns. Um, I think a, a clearer example, one that's probably easier to relate to, is this push to divest from fossil fuel producers. Um, and, and so while we may agree that, that you know, long-term reducing fossil fuel use is good for everyone, um, how we get there over the next, you know, in the short term, over the next five years is, is a challenge. Um, 
and in certain areas, um, you know, in, in certain developing countries, fossil fuels may be the only source they have. Uh, and so how do you balance those needs of, of, of you know, in certain areas where there is a, a need for fossil fuels, at least in the short term, versus a desire to eliminate. So we have clients who have elected to divest from that, but our, our, our generic approach to fossil fuels is that one of our, one of our investment um, tenants is that we're sector neutral in all of our portfolios, in most of our portfolios, where there are some exceptions. Um, but by sector neutrality, I mean, we've taken this point of view that, that we can't outsmart the market in terms of allocating to energy versus tech versus healthcare versus utilities. So we don't even try to do that. And then we focus within each of those sectors on what we think are the most attractive fundamentally based companies. And so within energy, we're gonna match the market weight, which is currently pretty low, roughly two and a half percent of the S&P 500. So we're gonna have low exposure to that um, but that means we're going to have two and a half percent basically exposed to fossil fuels um, because the alternative energy companies are all classified in other sectors. They're not actually in the, in the GIX energy sector. So by doing that, um, we're going to push, we're going to engage with the companies we invest in. You know, how are you dealing with the methane problem, for example? Um, you know, the, the methane release in, in, in certain processes um, uh, with oil and gas production can be worse than the actual burning of the fossil fuel itself. Um, so uh, our companies taking efforts to deal with those problems, to deal with the greenhouse gas effects of, of the production itself before the fossil fuel even gets burned. Um, and, and so that's one example of taking, um, you know, taking a holistic point of view that we're not gonna say, we're just not gonna invest in fossil fuels, but instead we're going to invest in fossil fuels and we're gonna push that, we're gonna invest in the companies that we think are producing fossil fuels in the most um, uh, responsible way and push them to be even more responsible. And then, you know, within fossil fuels, you've got, you know, coal, natural gas, oil, the three big areas, and, and they all have different environmental impacts. So we have chosen um, not to invest in coal for decades. Uh, and it's not, um, but we've made that choice because we felt that there was a financial risk to those companies as that demand was gonna drop faster and sooner than natural gas, for example. Uh, and, and so, you know, you, paying attention to these issues from an ESG perspective maybe helps us take that long-term view that, that, that told us 20 years ago to stop buying coal um, and has now got us engaging with, the, with the, 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 the gas companies that we do invest in um, uh, on how they can be uh, more responsible in how they, how they produce that and what their plans are um, going forward long-term. So one of the things I'll, you know, just mention, I won't mention the specific company, but, but one of the larger integrated oil companies we owned for, for many years um, and had lots of conversations with them and how they were managing uh, their environmental impact and, and, and um, uh, you know, the transition away from, from the heavy dependence we have on fossil fuels uh, in the past. Um, but we elected to sell it because if you looked at their capital budgeting, their capital budgeting kept showing that they were committing a lot of capital to, to 10 year, 15 year, 20 year projects to develop new sources of fossil fuel. And at some point we think the return on those investments is not going to be what it has historically been um, because we do think that there's gonna be a long-term change in demand for the sources of energy. Um, and so we're avoiding the companies that, that, in our view, don't see that long-term picture as clearly as they should. So, Dwayne, we, we got to know each other literally some 20 years ago when we were looking for a socially responsible fund. That's what, that, that's what we called it in those days. Now it's yeah. ESG. But isn't that one of the problems today that ESG means different things for different companies different things for different investors? And how do we wrap our, our heads around that ESG for you and me might be mean something completely different from other uh, uh, investment houses? And then how do the regulators uh, put their hands around all this and, and try to bring it in a way that it's transparent to investors? Yeah, I do think that, that um, 
you know, the three of us would have different definitions of what it means to be socially responsible. Um, and so, you know, the, there's this difference between values and value. So a values investor might say, I don't want to invest in any company that has anything to do with guns, to use an example we were using earlier. Um, a value investor says, well, I'll invest in a gun company if I think that long-term they have value. Um, and, and so um, ESG can be applied by both, whereas SRI, I think, was really more focused on the, the value side. Uh, and, and so you know, our learning about ESG at Dana really came about because we had SRI clients um, and it forced us to really dig deeper on, on environmental issues, corporate governance issues. Uh, and it was a great benefit to us early on. Uh, if you think about kind of the um, early 2000s, um, coming out of the, 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 the tech bubble of the late 90s, um, you, you had quite a few corporate governance um, issues, shall we say, at, at companies like WorldCom, Enron. Uh, and if you could use corporate governance research to avoid some of those, it really helped investment returns. And, and so we, we noticed right away that while we were doing this because of the social uh, um, requests of our clients in that SRI vein, uh, we found that it was helping us make better investment decisions. So I think ESG to me is just the broadening of SRI to go beyond values and to include the value side as well. And that's why it's gone mainstream is because everybody should be a value investor. Um, and, and, and so ESG can help you be a better value investor, be a better investor. And so, um, you know, I think there is a distinction between the values and the value uh, and different people, certainly on the value side, different people are gonna have different perspectives. On the value side, in the long run, we should all be wanting, um, you know, wanting to achieve the same thing there. Now in the short, you know, our horizons may cause us to come to different conclusions on individual securities. Um, but in the long run, we, we, everybody sees value the same way uh, from a financial perspective, whereas values can be very different from, from one person to another. Uh, and, and really that has, to be, um, uh, that has to be bespoke to the individual client. You know, We've tried to take an approach to that that, that gets at a consensus, um, but, but you know, it, it is each client is going to have their own view on it. So, Dwayne, we're just about out of time. And to that point, I would also assume that ESG could also be very regional. You know, you're down in Texas, and, and there's a, maybe a different view of the gun laws than we have up here in the Northeast. The folks in North Carolina along Tobacco Row, they may feel entirely different about their ESG criteria if they're tobacco producers. So, again, I would assume that ESG can sometimes be regional as well. It can. And I think, you know, you look at particularly in the SRI early stage, well, early stages, early stages for us, uh, but the SRI uh, era that, that kind of transitioned into ESG in the last 10 years or so, um, yeah, th that was very much true. You had um, SRI was very common in the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, and maybe not so much in the middle of the country. But now, you know, I, again, using energy as an example, here in Texas, we, energy is an important industry here. But yet, even within Texas, you see even people involved in energy understand the consequences of, of the fossil fuel um, energy production and, and consumption that we have um, and, and are looking for ways to, to manage that transition. So, so I think ESG has actually broadened it and, and removed some of that uh, regionalness, but, but it is true. Um, I, I do on the tobacco side, though, I do, I don't know if any of you, you remember John Boehner, the former Speaker mm -hmm. of the House, you know, in his book that he released last year, you know, he actually has an episode where he was on the board for one of the tobacco companies, and he went into the board meeting, and, and Boehner was a chain smoker, uh, and the people in the boardroom were telling him that, that uh, you know, this is not good for you, um, and none of them smoke, so, um, you know, I think some of the regionalness in the long run goes away. Um, you know, even I can think of other examples of, 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 uh, of foundations and other, uh, other sources of wealth that uh, maybe generated it from one source 
and is now recognizing the consequences of that source and are pretty active at, at trying to uh, address some of the, the, uh, the externalities that come about. So tobacco is one, uh, energy is another. Um, and I'm sure we could come up with other examples. I know two very specific instances of, of, of those first two though. Dwayne, we are unfortunately out of time. We'll definitely have to have you back and, and thank you this for, for this evening for making the time for us. Well, thank you. I hope uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you both and uh, look yeah, forward we, we to- We literally uh, just touched the, uh, the tip of the iceberg, Dwayne, but uh, I am looking forward to doing this and again and continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thank you guys. It's been a we'll pleasure. Be right back. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing, but I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less for taxes. your cash. Ask your advisor mm -hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Less taxes. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X. Letax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. All right, I'm, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella. Um, Dom, my takeaway from my conversation with Dwayne tonight is sometimes you and I lose sight of the wide net, what we do, um, the wide net that gets cast in, 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 in the people that we get to talk to, in the decisions that we're responsible for making, and, and just the, all the subtleties. Like, like, like you said, it's not cookie cutter. We use the word socially responsible in ESG and people think, oh, it's that. Then we get someone like Dwayne, and it's that times 17. There's just so many variations. And, and, and moving parts and trying for us on our side, making decisions and making allocation changes and figuring what part of the environment we, we want to focus on. And um, so it's an ever-evolving process. I, I think it is truthfully one of the things I love most about this job. Every day is a new day. Every day is interesting. Every day is a curveball. Um, but, you know, oversimplifying it, Mike, maybe a little bit, being a good corporate citizen at the end of the day means the stock price, the value of your company goes higher. And if you decide that you want to pollute or not treat your employees right or do something inappropriate, your stock price gets hammered. Um, and in some cases, we've known companies have had to file for bankruptcy. So being a co good corporate citizen, we can call it, we can label it anything you want, but it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing for the company. It's a healthy thing for the shareholders. I remember, and I don't know how many years ago it was now, but when I first heard the expression, what's a company's carbon footprint? And I remember it was mocked and it was made fun of. And what is that? And, oh, it's just a bunch of tree huggers. And you know what? Every company now has a way to measure their carbon footprint. And look, what's the harm? I mean, there obviously is a cost factor 
the companies doing this and then trying to minimize their carbon footprint, right? So there is a cost factor to this, but also being a good corporate citizen has intrinsic value, whether somebody's willing to buy your product, use your product, invest in your company stock, there is an intrinsic value to a company being a good corporate citizen and not blowing up a, a tanker in the middle of the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico or pollution or, again, mistreatment of your own uh, employees or your own customers. So mm -hmm. we can argue that there's a cost factor. Maybe that money should be used in a better way. And that's an argument we hear all the time. But what's that value added because the consumer appreciates you as a good citizen company and uses your product, right? That, that's not always a easy to measure thing, but simplistically, good corporate citizens for us, generally speaking, are good investments. And, and even it's a little, it's a little things, even tonight and how we've been doing this show for a better part of a year. You know, you're sitting on one end of Long Island. I'm sitting on the other end of Long Island. When, when we go home, you're going to go further east. I'm going to go further west. And, and neither one of us had to drive to each other to do the show together. We didn't have to drive to a studio to do the show. So even, even companies like Zoom and GoToMeeting, you know, these are companies that reduce the carbon footprint overall one little tiny drop at a time. But it all adds up. It adds up, Mike, and as citizens, and we hear this all the time, right? We're, we're looking at our own lifestyle and we're looking at our own life decisions and going, is this the smartest, most productive, most efficient way to operate and function? Um, and, you know, we, we live it daily, right? And you think of one plastic cup at a time or one mile uh, uh, less driving and fuel usage or buying an electric vehicle. We could sit here and argue why a Tesla is worth X amount of dollars or some other stock. But at the end of the day, it helps the quality of life. And there is a value to that, right? And, and, and in this case, there's a financial value to it. There is a financial value too, because I do think more and more company, more, I'm sorry, more and more investors are paying attention to the value proposition. As Dwayne said, it's values versus value. The value proposition that these companies have and are they committed to it or is it just lip service? I, I met the people at Dan, as I mentioned, 20 years ago for a client who was looking for a socially responsible fund. Seemed like a strange concept over 20 years ago. Today is part of our norm and Dan is ESG portfolio, which is our Labenthal ESG portfolio. Tremendous track record, terrific people, uh, done a wonderful job for us. And now it's mainstream for us where clients come to us, ask us for it and we have it and it's already built. So, you know, it, it's a full circle that comes around, but it's amazing that started 20 years ago, here we are today. Exactly. So Dom, on that note, um, we are out of time again. again. <laughs> Somehow. So hey, Mike, uh, great conversation tonight. One we definitely have to pick up the ball on and come back to at some point in the future. I think we definitely will. I think we'll have Dwayne back. But uh, on that note, Dom, you have a, a safe trip home east and I'll have a safe trip home west and I'll see you down the road. We'll talk again tomorrow, I'm sure. Have a great evening, Mike. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. 